It is all good. It's good to be in the house. Last week, I was in Bowling Green, Kentucky at a church me and Toy got to invest in for a couple years of our life. And just see God blooming and blessing this church was just super, super cool. But also made me feel old. There was kids there. It was their graduation Sunday that I remember like helping change their diapers in the nursery. Now they're graduating and I realized I am old. And so um, I'm joining the club, AARP. If you're listening, please send me the discounts and all that stuff. So uh, a lot of good stuff going on. Um, one thing is special is we have a special guest with us, Art and Miriam Remington. If y'all would come down real quick, I just want to pray over you. Pastor Art and Pastor Miriam, they are leaders in the Promise Keepers movement, and they're here with Michael Curtis. If I can have our staff come down, we're going to just pray over them. Give them a big round of applause real quick. And so we believe in the Capital C Church. We pray for churches every week. And when pastors are here, we just want to take time to just pray over them, a blessing of refreshing and redeeming over you. So you just go over here and we just pray for them. If you would, just reach your hands towards them. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for the gifts you bring into the body, which you bring through the vessels of men and women of God. And we thank you for Pastor Art and Miriam. But we thank you for your hand being upon their life. We thank you for the journey they've been on, for the experiences, the peaks, the valleys, Father, that they've experienced that to bring them to this place, Father, this place of revelation, this place of experience, Father, this place of gifting, this place of wisdom. And we pray, Father, for this next season they're walking into, that you use everything in their past, everything within their spirit to impart into the next generation. So Father, we pray for this moment right now to be a moment of refreshing, rejuvenation, for a fresh infilling, Father, for a fresh anointing. Father, for rest in the mind, rest in the body, and rest in the spirit. Father, we rebuke the enemy from their lives. We rebuke the spirit of anxiety. We rebuke the spirit of weariness. And Father, we pray that your spirit begins to bring energy and strength and power to minister through them in Jesus' holy name and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. Give them a round of of applause real quick. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5. And last week we had Voices Sunday, which I got to watch uh, this past week on our YouTube channel. And just absolutely incredible. I love watching God use people in their gifts and awakening the gifts that are inside of them and then empower them, empowering them to release those gifts to the body. And so it was just cool watching, uh, you know, Tommy Alexander and Jordan Lawrence and Diane Rao and Melissa Dollarson and Reagan and um, one more and Robbie Frainer just share their hearts and share the gifts they have in them. And, and that's the goal. One of the goals of a, of a spirit-filled church, I believe, a word and spirit church, is to eliminate the distance between the platform and the pew, meaning that the same amount of ministry should be happening out there that's happening up here. And Voices Sunday is a great way for us to do that. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be verse 31 and 32, which is interesting scripture. This is actually my scripture for graduation Sunday, and I felt like it was completely inappropriate to, to, to preach on marriage and divorce uh, to a bunch of people about to graduate and tell them, hey, congratulations, you graduated. Now you got to think about marriage and think about divorce and remarriage. Like, Probably not the most faith-inspiring message, but divorce is a reality in our culture. It's a, it's a reality in, in America. It's a reality in many parts of the world, but it's a reality also in the church. Like, like, raise your hand if you know anyone who's ever been through a divorce or affected by divorce. Raise your hand. Pretty much every single person in the room. And I think many times we lose sight of what it actually, we've gotten so desensitized to it that we forget about the pain and the tragedy that divorce actually is, that two people come together as one flesh and then they're ripped apart through divorce. And so there's all these tears and rips of the soul and the emotions and the heart and families and lives. Like the husbands and wives leave 
that, that marriage with trauma, like it's research that they spend 20 plus years of trauma coming out of that divorce. Then they carry that, that trauma or that stress or that distrust or that brokenness maybe into another marriage. So now that marriage has people that are, are carrying all this baggage. Then, then the kids, some of the statistics with kids, they carry rejection. They feel like they're the cause of mommy and daddy getting divorced. They are emotionally more sensitive they actually lose faith in marriage and in family. They have increased anxiety rates compared to kids who don't come from divorced families. Uh, one pastor said 50 years ago, parents were apt to have a lot of kids. But today, it's kids are apt to have a lot of parents. Friends, there are friends, couple friends. You had friends, you know, husband and wife and husband and wife. You were friends and there was a divorce and it gets all weird and awkward. You almost feel like you have to choose sides. There's a couple Twin, our really good friends with at church. And we had a, a Thanksgiving tradition. After Thanksgiving, we always went to Gaylord Opryland Hotel to walk through, see the Christmas lights as families. And we did that every year for about five or six years until they got divorced. And so the divorce didn't just affect them. It affected us as friends. It affected our kids. Like, like divorce has these tragic effects. Church. Like it's, it's a reality that in church, when people get divorced, it actually splits the church up into and society as a whole. If the fundamental building block of society is the family, when families get divorced, it actually affects the structure and the threadwork of family. And so divorce is tragic. And make no mistake about it, God hates divorce. But God does not hate divorcees. God hates divorce because of all that tragic pain and trauma it brings to the family, to people, to individuals, to kids, to the church, to society. It's not that God hates divorce because of the people involved. It's he hates what divorce does to the people involved. And if we don't see it the way God sees it, we'll become desensitized to it and actually think it's normal. And in reality, it wasn't normal until the sexual revolution of the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. And then all of a sudden, it became this new norm. And I need to say this, marriage matters. It matters to God. It matters to family. It matters to kids. It matters to the church. It matters to society. It matters to the government. It matters to the nation. It matters to the... Marriage matters. It is actually the fundamental building block of the church is the marriage. It is the number one discipling tool that God uses. Because with your spouse, you cannot fake it. They see the good, the bad, and the ugly. They know you better than anybody else. And God brings you a spouse to help disciple us to let go of our selfish natures to become one in a selfless pursuit of Jesus together. And here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. Says this, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery as well. And so Jesus is commenting on the sixth commandment. And so this whole section of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' commentary on the Ten Commandments. The lust, the adultery, the marriage, the divorce, you get into stealing, all this other stuff. He's commenting on it, and he's saying, you heard the law say this, but I say this. So this is the sermon approach, but what's great about the Bible is not only do you get the sermon, you get the small group format. 
right? So small group, community groups for us is you hear the sermon on Sunday morning, but in a community group, you can begin to break it down and discuss it and apply it to what it actually means to you and maybe your walk with Jesus. And so in Matthew chapter 19, it says this. So Sermon on the Mount is the big group. Matthew 19 is the application or the practicum in the small group. It says, And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Everybody say, any cause. They are looking for any way out this thing. I don't know what it's like in their home life, but they're they just looking for a way out. And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. So he's saying God's original plan was one flesh. One couple, but through the hardness of hearts, through sin, God permitted divorce for the benefit of the people because of their heart. Basically, he turned them over to their hard hearts. He said, I see whoever divorces a wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So Jesus gives the big, the big sermon, then he breaks it down in the discussion form. And when he comes down, Jesus is trying to move it from a question of divorce to what the purpose an ideal marriage should look like. He takes them all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and says, this is ideal marriage. Not where you're fighting over who's right and who's wrong. Not where you're fighting over whose money is whose money and whose money is not whose money. And you're not all that. He said you should be one flesh. Two come together in this amazing ceremony we spend thousands of dollars to have to lay down your identity, to lay down your identity, to become one identity in God. That is God's ideal marriage, is oneness that cannot be separated by selfishness or by selfish desires. And so God is trying to explain that through Jesus and this one become flesh. But the problem is the culture they were in didn't see it that way. See, the Romans really didn't have a problem with divorce because they just didn't marry. They felt it was so sexualized, they could just have affair after affair after affair. Actually, part of their worship was through sexual worship. And so for them, it didn't make a difference. But for the Hebrew people, for the church, Jesus said, that's the Romans. They, they do this for any cause, but for us, it's different. But even within the church, just like today, there's different opinions. The school of Shammai said this, a man may not divorce his wife unless he has found unchastity in her. But the school of Hillel said this, he may divorce his wife even if she spoiled a dish for him. Meaning if you mess up my bacon and egg and cheese sandwich, I'm gone. But then another rabbi said, he may divorce her even if he found another more fair than she. It's amazing that even 2,000 years ago, they're in the same predicament we are today. It starts with this is the ideal way God wants marriage, in one flesh. But then now one preacher stands up, he says, well, yeah, but, you know, if, if, if you know, she, she's looking at another guy, that may be enough. Well, this guy comes up, no, well, if she messes up your dinner, then that's her role, that's her responsibility. If she messes it up, you can divorce her then. Then finally gets to, well, you know, if you find somebody better looking, then marry her. And so this is actually the culture of the Pharisees 
who were these people who loved the word, who studied the word, who taught the word, they'd actually started practicing this this way. This is why Jesus said this when they asked for any cause. What Jesus was trying to tell them was this, here's your culture. You are saying, can I divorce my wife for any cause? It's saying, well, I'm married to this woman, but this woman is much better looking, and I want to have an affair with her, but I'm too holy for that. So I will divorce this wife legally so I can sleep with this wife until I get tired of this one. Then I'll divorce this one legally and sleep with this one. He's saying that's why it's adultery. Because you found a loophole to legalize your adultery to make yourself still feel holy, but to me, you're not holy. Because there may be legal laws and legislation in America that aren't recognized by heaven. He's saying, yet legally, you may have a divorce here, but in heaven, you're still married to your first wife. And so many times we, we practice stuff that's approved on, in, in our culture where it's approved in our nation, approved in our community, but it is not approved in heaven. And God is trying to say right here that marriage is not a legislation of Congress. Marriage is the legislation of heaven. And he begins nailing it down because they found these loopholes. But what I really, I, I was trying to, I was fighting with this message on to, to focus on marriage and divorce and remarriage. But what God kept taking me to is this, is that God is a God of covenant. And the way that the marriage is formed is a covenant marriage. And the sexual act of covenant or marriage is the binding act. So it's like this. God views marriage as a covenant. And he views sexual union as the binding covenantal act. And why that is important is if you don't see marriage the way God sees it, you're always going to reap the consequences of marriage, not the blessings. God sees it as a covenant, and he sees the sexual act as the binding covenant sign of the covenant. That's why just because they legally got divorced, it was the sexual act that caused the adultery because the covenant was still in place. And so until you see it the way God sees it, you'll never get it. And you need to know this, that if you take nothing home else today, if you check out because you're like, I'm married, I'm good, I'm single, I'm good. No, if you get nothing else, get this. God is a God of covenant. Well, you say, well, it's all about relationship. Yeah, but your relationship is through a covenant. This Bible is separated between an old covenant and a new covenant. That word testament is just the Greek version of the word covenant. Everything God does is built on covenant. He is a God of covenant. Well, what is a covenant? It is this. It is a spiritually binding relationship between God and his people. It has legal status in the spiritual realm that includes certain agreements, conditions, benefits, and effects. God is a God of covenant. When he builds a relationship, it's a covenant relationship. It's not a friendly relationship. It's, not a, it's a covenant. It's a binding relationship that has legal ramifications in the spiritual realm. And if you are saved, you are saved through a covenant. If you are married, you're married through a covenant. If you have family, you have family through a covenant. Everything in the spiritual realm is done through covenants. And it's like, the, here's just a few in scripture. It won, and there's an eternal covenant. In Hebrews 13, it talks about an eternal covenant. Before the foundations of the earth, God had a covenant in place for his people. But in the Garden of Eden, there was a covenant of creation where God created Adam and Eve and set parameters and promises in place. 
But then once they sinned, there was a covenant of redemption through the Adamic covenant. Where even though they sinned, God said, even though you've fallen, even though you've sinned, here's the covenant. You walk with me and I'm going to bring a redeemer. I'm going to bring a Messiah to crush the head of the serpent. And he set a covenant in place. So Adam and Eve were now again back in covenant. But when Noah, when the flood came, he placed a new covenant, which is a covenant of human government, where he says, I will not destroy this earth again. I'm going to let it be, but here's the new government. And then with Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant, it's a covenant of promise where God promised blessing upon blessing upon blessing to all of the people of Abraham. And so Abraham receives this covenant. Now he passes that covenant on to his sons, his daughters, to his grandkids and grandkids, all the way up through Jesus, and then Jesus hands it off to us. It's a covenant. It's a covenant of Israel. But then you keep on going. The Mosaic covenant, which was a legal covenant that God gave Moses in order to guide and lead his people. And then with David, he gave a covenant of the kingdom. And then in the new covenant or salvation, there's a covenant of unconditional love through the promise and purpose of Jesus Christ. Like it's covenant after covenant after covenant. God is a God of covenant. Touch your neighbor and say covenant. covenant. Not of convenience, because many times these covenants, it'd been much more convenient for God to say, you know what? I'm done. But covenant is binding legally in the spiritual realm. God operates by the rule of his covenant. He keeps every single promise in his covenant. He rules by the conditions of his covenant. He moves through covenant and he blesses through covenant. There are no blessings outside of covenant. Like all the blessings are, are confined in this covenant. That's why we need to see marriage as a covenant because God's blessings are on the covenant. They're not on the experience. They're not on playing house. They're not on living together. They're on the covenant. God operates and rules by covenant. In Nehemiah 1.5, it says this. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He is a God of covenant. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, a day after getting taken to the promise, I mean, they're literally in the garden of Eden, paradise. A couple days later, they sinned. Instead of condemning them, God remembered the covenant he set before the foundations of the earth. When he looks down in Sodom and Gomorrah and all the chaos of sin and per perversion, all this junk, when he sees it, he could have destroyed it, but he remembered the covenant. And he said, I'm not going to destroy them all because there's one man I found faithful and I'll reestablish my covenant with him. When the Hebrews were stuck in Egypt under bondage and slavery, and they cried out, God remembered his covenant. And when they were walking through the wilderness and they were getting distracted and started to wander, God remembered the covenant and gave them the law to guide them. Then when David saw was king, he was a bad king, but the Israelites needed a leader and a future Messiah. He remembered the covenant and sent David, raised them up to be an example of what the future may look like. When Ezekiel looks at the dry bones of Israel and the nation was depraved and corrupt and dying, God remembered the covenant and breathed life back into dry bones. And then for a couple hundred years, the prophets went silent. Sin, stress, anxiety, oppression, start building up on the Hebrew people. The Romans have conquered Jerusalem. 
And it says in Luke chapter 1 that God remembered his covenant. And from that covenant was birthed a little bitty baby born of a virgin named Mary. And that little bitty baby wasn't just any baby. He was God incarnate because God remembered his covenant. And that same Jesus who was raised in, in the law and raised in all the things of the word, around the age of 30, after he started his ministry, he was faced with a decision to go to the cross or to pull away in the Garden of Gethsemane. Such a stressful decision. He was sweating blood, but he remembered the covenant. And he went upon the cross and hung upon the cross. And as he said there, he said, it is finished. What was he talking about? The old covenant. Three days later, he resurrects and it's now a new covenant. Forty days after that, he tells the the people, his disciples, the apostles, hey, listen, I'm about to go to heaven, but I'm going to let my Holy Spirit come and, and dwell within you to establish the new covenant. And now when life gets difficult, when you start seeing sin and chaos and murder and abortion and oppression and bondage and racism and slavery, you start seeing this, you can remember the covenant. Because he says in Revelation 21, all these things will pass away and he's going to establish a new heaven and a new earth as part of the new covenant. God is a God of covenant. If you're in the covenant, you get the blessings. If you're outside the covenant, you get the consequences. God is a God of covenant. And that's why you need to realize that marriage is not about convenience. It's not about fulfilling your Hallmark movie dreams. It's not about fulfilling your Disney princess dreams. It's not about having somebody cook your dinner for you when you get home. It's not about a contract. It's about a covenant. And it is vital if we're going to be covenant people, we begin to look at marriage as a covenant. Because outside that covenant, there are no blessings. I remember years ago, there was a young gentleman, he, he got his girlfriend pregnant, they had the baby, they hadn't got married, and he came to the altar and asked for a prayer of blessing. He says, yeah, I just need a blessing, I need to get this job, I need to get this provide. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. So some of y'all think that the pastor's job is to, <laughs> I don't know, just speak blessing over your life. Our job is not to speak blessing over your life, our job is to speak grace and truth into your life. And he came down, he's like, well, I just need you to pray a blessing, I, I need this, I need this. I said, well, look, let me, it's an awkward moment, like, I said, let me, let me tell you this. I was like, if you do things God's way, you get God's blessings. But if you do things your way, you get the responsibility and the consequences of all thereof. Marriage is a covenant that you come together one and one and you sacrifice yourselves, your identity, to become one under the promise and blessing of God to pursue God together. And in that, God gives heavenly covenantal blessings. You don't get the blessings if you don't have the covenant. And so we live in a culture where we've separated the blessings from the covenant. We don't want the covenant, we just want the blessings. And so I think one of the reasons the divorce rate is so high is because we don't have the covenant, we just have the contract. And the contract doesn't promise any blessings. It promises transactions. It says this in Malachi 2, 13 through 16, which some of you know as that God hates divorce scripture, but it says this. And this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears and weeping and sighing because he no longer gives attention to your offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. What is interesting about that scripture 
is what he's saying is, you're so ceremonial, but your heart is so far away from mine. And when you read that, you think of the altar, you think of worship, you think of sacrifice, but you could also think of wedding ceremonies. That you're going through all this pomp and circumstance. You got the right dress. You got the right flowers. You got the right invitations. You got the right reception. You got the right music. You got the right groomsmen. Used to you'd have three or four. Now you have 35 in your wedding. And you have all the right stuff. Like you got the ceremony. And this is the thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears and weeping and sighing because he no longer gives attention. Why? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against you have dealt with treacherously. Though she is your marriage companion and your wife by covenant. Not by contract, not by the justice of the peace, not by the pastor, not by the preacher. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the spirit. Meaning God will leave a spirit, a remnant of the people that are spiritual. And why the one? He was seeking a godly offspring. Be careful then about your spirit and see that none of you deals treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with violence, said the Lord of armies. So be careful about your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Meaning the covenant is a direct reflection of your relationship with God. So when you get married, this I'm sacrificing my identity, you're sacrificing your identity so we can become one together in marriage is a reflection of when you come to Jesus, you sacrifice your identity to become one with Jesus. Then it becomes a shared identity that is under covenant. And there's a whole lot of, like when you go through the wedding ceremony, I didn't have time to do this, but everything in our traditional wedding ceremony goes back to covenant ceremonies in the Old Testament. All of it. It's all about covenant. But when you see it as a covenant, it means I sacrifice something of myself for the betterment of the covenant. And so for a husband and wife, I sacrifice. I tell people that you're giving up your desires to be an individual single woman. You're giving up your desires to be an individual single man. They should die at the altar so that you can be, have a resurrected new life together as one. You can pursue God together. Every covenant has this purpose attached to it to advance God's kingdom. And marriage is no different. That when you come together in marriage, it should advance God's kingdom first through your children, your future children, through your marriage, but also through any endeavors you have together. And so covenant is strong, but we live in a day and age, we don't have covenants anymore, we have contracts. You remember, remember years ago, when I remember my, my dad and my grandfather used to go to the bank. When you used to go get a loan at the bank, you actually went to the bank. You met the banker. When you had to say, I will pay this back, you shook hands. And so there's this, this relational component to it. Well, now if you want a loan, you just go online and you put in your credit score, your information, and it tells you if you're approved or not. I think one of the reasons why we're a debt-loaded society is because there's no relational aspect to our debt load anymore. If you didn't pay your debt back in the day, you had to see John Doe, the banker, at your little boy's baseball game. And it's a little awkward, like, man, I hope he don't see me. Like, I ain't paid in seven years. I hope he doesn't see me. But your computer, you don't get that same effect. So you'll build up debt, build up debt, and you'll not pay it back because there's no relational component. See, contracts lack a relational component that binds the contract together. Covenants, on the other hand, are solely, solely relational with transactions on the side. It says this. 
between a contract and a covenant. A contract is a transaction. A covenant is a relationship. A contract is about interest. A covenant is about identity. It is about you and me coming together to form an us. That's why contracts benefit, but covenants transform. They transform your identity. Contracts are about what you can get out of them. Contracts transform you. So contracts are made for a limited time. There's terms on a contract. But a covenant is to be for life and forever. Contracts are based with tasks. Covenants are relational and based on love. Contracts are based on if you do this, then I will do that. But covenants are based on unconditional promises. Covenants or contracts are motivated by selfish desires. Covenants are made for the benefit of the other person. Contracts can be broken, but covenants require forgiveness. When you look at the covenant God had with with the Hebrew people, they'd walk in the blessings, they'd stray away. God would forgive them, bring them back in the covenant, and they would stray away. See, covenants, you don't break them when things go wrong. You re-engage the covenant when things go wrong. It's amazing, and since we live in a culture in which we're more contractual than covenantal, what happens is when a contract doesn't go your way, you start looking for loopholes in the contract, right? So if you buy a car and you buy the car for a month, and all of a sudden the transition doesn't work, you start digging through that contract trying to figure, oh, I got 30 days. Man, I'm on day 32. What about this? You start looking for loopholes in the contract to get rid of the car. But with covenant, there are no loopholes. So instead of breaking the contract, you have to find a way to reinvest in it. So God, instead of breaking the covenant, he just found ways to reinvest in his covenant people. And we as a people are so contractual that with friends, with family, even with our kids, with our spouses, when things don't go the way we want them to go, we start looking for loopholes. How can I get out of this and God still bless me? How can I get out of this marriage and get a new marriage and start over with the blessings of God? How can I get out of this marriage or this person so I can marry this person? We are loophole people. And I'll tell you this, God is not a loophole God. And when we come back to a covenantal approach to marriage, I promise you, you'll begin to see the health of marriages increase the divorce rate decrease, the anxiety in kids decrease, and the strength of the next generation increase. It, almost everything traces back to covenant. It's incredible. You, you would think, this, this is how contractual are. The divorce rates, and there's different opinions on this, but just for a round figure, is 50% for first marriages. It's actually a little bit lower than that, but 50% for first marriages. What do you think the divorce rate is for second marriages? You would think after you tried once, you learned a little something, 64%. Okay, you've been married once or twice. You would think, okay, if I try this, three's a charm. The first guy, he had a problem. The second guy, he had a problem. This guy's perfect. I'll get married again. Guess what the divorce rate is for the third marriage? 74%. So marriage is not one of those things, if you fail, just get up and try, 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 try again. See, the reason they're getting married so many times is because they think it's a contract. It's a covenant. I remember a couple years ago, I was in Cuba. I was talking to Coach Tony Pujol from UNA this week. His family's from Cuba. We're, we're talking about all this stuff with Cuba. And I remember going to Cuba, Logan Lowry was with me. And I remember we get off the plane. And I, have, I don't know if I have a look or there's something on my passport that just triggers me for security anywhere in the world. 
So we're in Cuba. I'm already a little nervous. I'm six foot four, white guy. I obviously don't look Cuban. We're going through this little bitty airport about the size of this room. And I'm the last in line. And before I'm getting in line, I watch these guys, these little Cuban guys standing over here looking at me, just staring me down. So I don't know where you come from, but it's like, bro, you want to take a picture to last longer? Like what, what? But I'm scared, so I'm just like ignoring them. And I get in line. Everybody else goes through security. They're on the other side. They are free in Cuba. I'm still in this little secure area. There's this cute little Cuban girl working the little security desk. She said, come forward. I was like, oh, she's sweet. And I hand her my passport. She looks at my passport. She's like, oh, step back, sir. I was like, oh. So I step back. Next thing I know, the mob comes out of the back room. They start looking at my passport, looking at me. I'm like, this, this, this. everybody else is gone. I'm like, I'm going to die in Cuba, right? So I'm going through. She's going through my passport. She goes, through, she says, oh, sir, you, come you, you can go. I'm like, I don't want to go now. I want to get back on the plane and go back. And so uh, my, my start in Cuba was bad, right? But one of the things in Cuba that's so amazing is this. So since the embargo in the 1960s with John F. Kennedy, there's no imports really coming into Cuba. They, you can't get American-made products of any kind back in Cuba. But what's crazy is it's like time stopped in the 1960s. You'll see 57 Chevys. You'll see 61 Cadillacs. You'll see all these amazing... It's like it stopped. It's like going back in time. But what you won't see is... I, I rode in a car to go preach somewhere, and it's like a, a 1954 Chevy but it's got like a Kia four-cylinder engine in it, right? Because they make brake pads out of tires. They'll put tires on a lathe and actually make brake pads out of old tires. And they take care of these cars. So it's a 57 Chevy, but it's still running. You know why? They can't just go to a dealership and get a new car. They can't just go trade this car in for another car. They have to invest and maintain the car they have to last a lifetime. But in our culture, if your car gets old, it gets too dirty, you can go trade it in. If you don't like the way it sits anymore, if there's a newer model that comes out and you like that model better, or if you want another color, you can take your car, you can trade it in, they'll give you money for that one, and you can get a new car. It's amazing how that whole mentality is affecting the way we see marriage. In Cuba, you know what the divorce rate is? Zero. Why? They don't trade in their spouse. They just invest in the one they have. They don't trade in their spouse for a new model. They just value and love the one they already have. But in America, as soon as you get tired of something, you want a fresher, newer model. Consumerism has entered the marriage realm. And so when Jesus says, if you divorce anybody other than this, what he's saying is, y'all got it twisted. It's not about loopholes and divorce or remarriage. It's about the covenant. How do you see the covenant? And he says this. He says, if you divorce your wife for anything other than sexual immorality, then you're committing adultery. So, so why is that such a profound statement? Well, the reason is the sexual union is the binding sign of covenant. Which means if he cheats on you with another woman or she cheats on you with another man, she's illegitimately started a new covenant with somebody else. See, this is where I think we, we really mess it up. Is sex is not some sexual revolution of pleasure. It is spiritual at its foundation. It is spiritual at its foundation. Now, I could take you, we don't have the time, but I could take you through all the different world religions and how they view sexuality. But I'll tell you this. Hindus practice sex as a form of spiritual development. 
They view it as a form of transcendence. The church of Satan views it as a form of worship and the transferring of spirits. So what I'm telling you is every other religion in the world, even new age spirituality, which is all a bunch of weird hippies that smoke too much pot, they view sexuality and sex as a spiritual, spiritually binding experience. And then we at church, we just look at it as just, you know, it's just what we do for fun. It's just what you do to make babies. No, no, something happens when two souls become one through a sexual union. And it's called a soul tie, that that your souls are actually tied together. The two flesh become one flesh means you're bound together and your spirits become intertwined to become one. So when you get divorced or you have multiple sexual partners, what you're doing is you're becoming one and ripping it apart, becoming one, ripping it apart, becoming one and ripping it apart. That's why we have a whole generation of people who don't know who they are because they divided themselves so many times they've lost themselves. And it's crazy. Like, see, Will Smith smacked Chris Rock in the, at the Oscars. And that thing all trickles back to Jada Pinkett Smith saying she cheated on him and said, well, it's just an entanglement. You know, I don't know about your spouse, but if I was to come home and say, baby, I had an entanglement, I'd be murdered. <laughs> so I don't know what they'll work with, but, but I started thinking about that word entanglement. I'm like, well, she's saying well, it's an entanglement. I got caught up. I was, no, no, no. No, she was right. Spiritually, she got entangled in a mess that caused massive effects in her marriage, in her kids, and in the spiritual realm. See, sex is an entangling thing where you entangle your heart, your soul, your spirit, and your emotions all together, and it causes spiritual confusion. That's why people can't see which way to go is because they're spiritually confused because they've entangled themselves spiritually. And in the Bible, it, you know, your marriage ceremony, I could go through the scriptures, but I don't have time and I know y'all want to go eat lunch. So in the, in, the, in the Bible, you weren't considered married during your wedding ceremony. You weren't considered married at the reception. You weren't considered married when you exchanged rings. You weren't considered married when you said, I do. You were considered married after you consummated the marriage sexually. That's why Jacob has, has one marriage to Rachel, has a whole ceremony, but then Laban, his corrupt father-in-law, slides Leah in to his tent at night. He actually is married to Leah. He didn't have a ceremony with Leah. He didn't have an exchange of vows with Leah. He didn't have a reception with Leah. He didn't give Leah a ring. But the Bible considered him married not because of the ceremony, but because of the sexual union. So what that tells me is if we engage in sexual promiscuity like culture, what happens is before you ever get married, you've been married and divorced numerous times. So you carry the same burden, the same anxiety, the same stress, the same trauma as divorcees. That's why Jesus hit this so hard. It's not about marriage and divorce. It's about coveted and sexual union. And so the problem is, what if, what if you've been divorced? Everybody in here raised their hands about divorce. We've all seen divorce. I'll tell you this. Jesus says this in Matthew 19, that the only reason for divorce is hard hearts. It's hard hearts. It means, it means somebody's heart has gotten hard. That means every divorce has sin in it. But that doesn't mean every divorce is sinful. 
And what that means is you, there could be one person. It takes two hearts. This is what's so difficult about marriage in church world. It takes two healthy individuals to make one healthy marriage. If one individual is unhealthy and one is healthy, you get an unhealthy marriage. If both individuals are unhealthy, you get an unhealthy marriage. That means you only have 33% odds to have a healthy marriage. And so what happens is you may have gotten divorced. That doesn't mean you're sinful, but it does mean it was caused by sin. Somebody's heart got hard towards God and the covenant or the relationship, or it got hard to one another. And that hardness of heart causes distance, causes separation, ends up causing divorce. Does God hate divorce? Yes. Does he hate divorcees? No. And here's what he gives us for the only four. I found four biblical grounds for divorce based off Jesus' words and Paul's words. And one is this, adultery. So when your spouse starts another covenant by sexual adultery with somebody else, God sees you as legally divorced in heaven. Two is abandonment. When a Christian is abandoned by a non-Christian believer, I mean, you're married to somebody and they're not a believer and they leave you. The Bible says you are free to remarry. And the word divorce, just so you know, means to remarry. And when Jesus says this in the first part of Matthew chapter five, there is no, the, the punishment for adultery in the Old Testament was stoning. There was no room for divorce. So God is already giving grace there. And the word divorce actually means to give permission to remarry. So if, if you're abandoned by your spouse, they desert you, they move off somewhere else and leave you and the kids, you are free in heaven. Also apostate, when a Christian is living in the realm of spiritual death through unrepentant spiritual rebellion and has been officially recognized by the church, that person is now divorced. Meaning you're living with somebody, it's addiction, it's, you know, just they're running rampant. They don't believe in God anymore. They don't love you. They don't love God. They don't love you because they don't love anything and they're just spiritually dead. There comes a point where you can say, I'm done. But there's also abuse. You know, I, I don't think, I was talking to a lady this week, Pastor Anthony, I don't think people say this enough, that yet yeah, God hates divorce, but God also hates abuse. In, in Malachi 2, he's actually saying, you've dealt treacherously, treacherously with your spouse. And I think, you know, we need men in church that say, listen, if you put your hands on your wife, I'm gonna put my hands on you. I don't know if that's biblical or Christian, but it sounds really good to me. I've actually had that, when I was in, in Kentucky pastoring, there was a guy who put his hands on his wife. I actually had to have that conversation. Like, if you think you're tough, why do you only put your hands on women and kids? See, abuse, God wants a order and, and peace in the home. And I think God will give you the grace you need to escape the abuse so you can be healed by the healer. You can't be healed while you're still in the abuse. And so does God command divorce? No, if, if your spouse committed adultery, he doesn't say you have to get divorced. He permits it because of our hard hearts. And so you have to pray and, and trust God. And so you say, well, what if I had a divorce? What, what, what if I've been divorced? Maybe I was talking to a pastor this week who'd been divorced. His wife left him. He was in ministry. You know, now he's back in ministry thanks to the grace of God. Like what happens if you're divorced? I'll tell you this. Divorce is a sin because it breaks a covenant. But God is a God of forgiveness. And it's interesting to me that in some church world, I don't, I don't know what everybody's background is here. Like, you know, if you commit murder and you get saved, like, oh, look at God's redemptive story. Somebody strung out on drugs and they get healed, and they get saved. Like, look at God's redemptive story. And somebody gets divorced and they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You can never, never be redeemed. 
Like you, you got to wear this big scarlet D on your shirt. You can't serve in kids ministry. You can't be an usher. You got to sit at the top of the balcony and we're going to just walk past you. Don't talk to them. Like that's some church culture. And so it's saying, okay, God can forgive all sin except for this one. Remember Pastor Sandy Sturban, who's a, a pastor at my home church in Cornerstone. She'd been serving at the church in the office, the Michigan counselor, and through the Assemblies of God, she wanted to get ordained. So came to get ordained. She'd been married before. Her husband cheated on her, abandoned her, and left her, and she's remained single ever since. And the Assemblies of God, depending on what you think about it, they told her they couldn't ordain her because she was a divorced woman. So my pastor, Maury Davis, who's never been one to hold his opinion back, talked to the presbytery. He said, so let me get this right. So there's forgiveness of every sin except for this one. And I said, well, kind of, he said, so let me get this straight. He's like, I've committed a murder when I was 18 years old. God has forgiven me and you gave me credentials, but you won't give this woman credentials because her husband left her. And they're like, well, well, yeah. He said, so what you're telling me is if, if she just killed her husband, you'd give her credentials. <laughs> Do you see how stupid we can get as church people? We say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Unless you've been divorced. I once was blind, but now I'm still blind and divorced. Like, God is a covenantal God. And God can renew covenant. Every covenant is built on forgiveness and mercy. And I want to read you in Jeremiah 3, just real quick, and I'm going to close. It says this in Jeremiah 3. I'm going to start in verse 6. It says, The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, have you seen what she did, that faithless, faithless one, Israel? So he's talking about Israel's being this bride in this scripture. How she went up on every hill and under every green tree and there played the whore. Excuse my language, that's what the Bible says. And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of the faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. It's interesting. God is saying, Israel was having an affair on me. Israel was having an affair on me. Israel was cheating on me. But I kept waiting, thinking it would play its course and she returned to me. But she didn't return. So God gives her a divorce decree, meaning breaks the covenant. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the, the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all of this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. And the Lord said to me, faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words to the north and say. Now, this is Israel who he gave a divorce decree. It says this, return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever, only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree, and that you have not obeyed my voice. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord. For I am your master, I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and will bring you to Zion. Do you realize how powerful that is? That even to a whole nation who turned against God, he says, I don't hold this against you. I am merciful, and I'm going to draw you back and bring you back. If you're divorced, I will tell you this. Divorce is a sin, but God is a forgiving God. And this is my, my plea to you today. If you've been divorced and you've never went to God to ask for forgiveness, mercy, and redemption from that divorce, 
to ask him to break the old covenant so you can start walking in a new covenant, I would do that today. Maybe you've, you've engaged in sexual immorality, sexual prom, promiscuity, and you've had your soul tied to many people. I would say today is the day you acknowledge, God, I wasn't just sinning against them. I wasn't just sinning against myself. I was sinning against you. And I ask that you break these covenants in Jesus' name. Break them off of me so I can walk in freedom to have the life you have for me underneath the covenant. It's such a strong and needed perspective. And the last thing is this, if your marriage is contractual, it's always about what they did and what they didn't do and what you did and what you didn't do. If it's all contractual, it's time for you to shift to a covenantal mindset. That this isn't my marriage, this is God's marriage. It's not your covenant, it's God's covenant. It's amazing. We want God at the wedding, but we don't want him in the after of the wedding. Just bow your heads and just close your eyes just real quickly. You're in this room and you said, you know what? I've been divorced and, I, and I've carried some, some guilt, some shame, even maybe some pain and some trauma. I'll tell you the reason for that is covenants are not easily broken. And so maybe you're walking under underneath the consequences of that covenant. And maybe today's the day where you say, God, I need your forgiveness. For that marriage, I, I, maybe you know, maybe you were completely in the right, but God, I still I need forgiveness for this divorce. It didn't give you glory. I didn't fulfill the vows. God, I need forgiveness. Maybe you came out of divorce and you said, God, I need you to forgive me so I can start this life off right. Maybe you're already in a, in a new marriage. God, forgive me of my past marriage and give me grace and mercy in this marriage to carry out your covenant and to see your glory fall in my mind, in my heart, in my life, and in my marriage. That's you. I just want you to slip your hand up real quick. Anybody else? You can put them down if you raise them. Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you that you are a God of covenant. And you operate and rule by your covenant. You pour blessings into your covenant. You restore your covenant, you renew your covenant, but you also remember your covenant. Father, for these hands have been raised. Father, we come out of a season of a broken covenant. Father, I pray one for forgiveness. I pray for redemption. I pray that the blood covers them and renews them and restores them. And Father, I pray for their future marriages or their current marriages that you allow for it to be built on the covenant of the goodness and the mercy and the glory of God. I pray for renewal. Father, I pray for unconditional promises. I pray for love. I pray, pray for forgiveness. I pray for mercy in Jesus' name. And Father, for those who have dealt with sexual promiscuity and soul ties, right now I pray in Jesus' name. I pray for every single soul tie that's been connected through sexual promiscuity, through the exchanging of love that defiles the marriage bed. I pray for soul ties to be broken that have been walked out through new age and spirituality and transcendence. Father, I pray for sexual soul ties to be broken from abuse and homosexuality. I pray for them to be broken Jesus' name, Father, to be cleansed and be a temple of the most holy God in Jesus' holy name. All God's people said, amen.